Hello and welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Clay. I'm Sarah. We are a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Sarah, accidents happen all the time. <laughs> yeah. Most accidents in our day-to-day lives are of little consequence. You stub your toe, a glass breaks in the dishwasher, a tree limb falls on your favorite garden gnome. Your kid sits on your head a little bit too hard and it feels like you got punched. As as happened to you this morning. Yeah. 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 It happens. Mm-hmm. But in 1961, a slightly more terrifying accident occurred. Uh-oh. A B-52 bomber was flying over North Carolina when a fuel leak quickly led to the plane beginning to lose control and break apart in the sky. That is a slightly more upsetting accident, yeah. That's not very good. No, that's bad. Now, most of the crew members were able to escape. As it spiraled in the air, centrifugal forces in the cockpit pulled a lever which released the payload that the bomber was carrying. Oh, my God. Two thermonuclear bombs. Oh, dear God. Yeah, that's quite an accident. The bombs landed safely in a field just 12 miles north of Goldsboro. Oh, my God. And when the Air Force and when Air Force personnel went to retrieve them, they discovered that one of the 24 megaton bombs had been armed. Oh, God. A single switch had prevented it from detonating. And that is why today there is a road marker in Eureka, North Carolina, with the title Nuclear Mishap Instead of a Crater. Huh. Is that why they called it Eureka? Well, I don't know if Eureka came before or after. It seems like it probably came before. Right. But I don't know. What a wild coincidence. We talked about nuclear weapons way back in episode 23, mm. which feels like forever ago now. That was, that was over a year ago. Yeah. Suffice it to say, there are they are pretty dangerous, nuclear weapons are. <laughs> Famously. And if there is one thing on Earth you don't want to have an accident with, <laughs> I'd say nuclear weapons are right around the top of that list. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that, actually. And in fact, I'd say the absolute worst mistake a person could make throughout all of history, would probably involve a nuclear weapon during the Cold War. Oh, boy. Yeah. And that is because of a little thing called mutually assured destruction. Yeah. This is the situation that the U.S. and the Soviet Union found themselves in where each side's nuclear arsenal was so strong that it could obliterate each other and pretty much the world. Right. So if you attack me, I'm going to immediately attack you in defense, and we'll both just be annihilated. Yeah, we're all going to die. Literally everyone. And this was a pretty good deterrent because it encouraged neither side to get too hot in their hostilities, hence the term the Cold War. Right. But look, people are fallible. We make mistakes. (laughs) A little oopsie. Uh Uh-huh. And on at least two occasions, the world almost ended in nuclear annihilation as the result of a mistake. A single word from the apocalypse. And there were two men who found themselves in positions to make a critical choice, and their decisions literally saved the world. Ooh, good for them. That's fun. This first incident took place on September 26th, 1986. Soviet Air Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stanislav Petrov was on duty 
in a bunker near Moscow observing the Soviet Union's new computer system, OKO. This was an early warning system that used satellites to notify of any impending nuclear missile attack in the USA. Now, shortly after midnight, a loud siren rang out. Petrov looked at the monitor. A missile had been fired from a U.S. military base on the East Coast. His initial review of the situation was, no, this, this, this can't be right. Uh, you, the U.S. wouldn't fire just one missile at the Soviet Union. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. That's not how World War III would begin. Right. It must be a false alarm. It's the only explanation. But the computer alert, the computer alert system displayed the highest level of reliability. Mm. And then the siren rang again. And his monitor lit up. Uh-oh. Four more missiles had been fired. That makes more sense. Five intercontinental ballistic missiles would arrive in the USSR in 40 minutes. Oh, my God. That's not enough time. And Petrov had to make a decision. Was this real? Was the U.S. really attacking? Oh, my God. So at this point, the relationship between the two superpowers was very strained. Just a couple of weeks prior, the Soviet military had shot down Korean Airlines Flight uh, 007, which had strayed way off course into highly sensitive Soviet airspace. Oh, God. All 269 passengers were killed, including Georgia Congressman Larry McDonald. Oh, uh-oh. And up to 40 other Americans. Uh-oh. And even before this, Soviet command had predicted that the U.S. was preparing for war and had begun to make preparations of their own. So things were really in a bad spot right now. Yeah. So seeing some sort of preemptive attack, one may say that makes that makes some sense for it happening right now. Mm-hmm. But Petrov still didn't believe this was right. The number of missiles was still such a small initial attack, right? Yeah. Especially knowing that they would immediately be met with mutually assured destruction. You would think it'd be like an all-out bombardment. (laughs) You want to make it worth it. Yeah. As the minutes passed by, Petrov had to report to his superiors what was happening. Mm -hmm. If an attack was happening, they would need to respond immediately. Right. If the attack was real and Petrov had incorrectly reported as a malfunction, he'd be responsible for for the destruction of his country. But if it was a malfunction and he reported it as real... He'd be responsible for inadvertently starting World War III and yeah. causing the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. After a few minutes and his junior officers all standing by waiting on bated breath, Petrov picked up the phone and informed his superiors that Oko was experiencing a false alarm. Nice. They trusted his conclusion and all they could do is wait to see if he was right or wrong. And fortunately, fortunately for him and the rest of us, he was right. Phew. He, and he said this. I gave the Americans the benefit of the doubt. I was convinced that the Americans were a militant nation, but not a suicidal one. Mm. I remember thinking, that big an idiot has not been born yet, not even in the U.S. <laughs> well, I don't know, but... <laughs> not that big an idiot. <laughs> he did receive a reprimand. For not appropriately logging the event per regulations. Oh, for goof's sake, really? But otherwise, he was neither punished nor rewarded for oh, this. Okay, he cool. did He did what he was supposed to do. Yeah, I guess that's fair. And perhaps the reason that um, 
that he was not rewarded too much is because if he had been, people who had designed the satellites and the computer systems would have been punished. Oh, You know yeah. what I mean? Well, Petrov retired the following year and lived in pretty, in pretty much obscurity until his story finally became known to the world in the late 90s. Wow. He received several awards, recognitions, and there was even a movie made about him called The Man Who Saved the World in uh, 2013. Wow, good for him. He passed away on May 19th, 2017, claiming throughout his life that he was he was not a hero. Anyone in his position would have evaluated the situation and come to the same conclusion. You would hope. You would hope. But that isn't really true. Many people would not respond so carefully to such a dire situation. God, no. Which is exactly what Vasily Arkhipov discovered when he found himself in his own predicament. Oh, my God. So his story took place in October 1962. Now, if you know your history, you'll know that this was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Which I did mention just last week. That's correct. Where they used Hedy Lamarr's design in the in the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's right. You sure did. So we're bouncing off each other now. Perfect. Now, just to catch everyone up on what the missile crisis really was, um, this took place during the Cold War as well. The year prior, the U.S. had placed nuclear missiles in Western Europe and Turkey, which were most, much closer to the Soviet Union than they had missiles to us. So naturally, they wanted to even the playing field mm -hmm. by putting some of their missiles closer to America. Luckily for them, Cuba had a major, let's say, kerfuffle with the U.S. <laughs> the CIA had just attempted to invade Cuba yeah. and assassinate Fidel Castro through the failed Bay of Pigs invasion and the failed Operation Mongoose. Yeah. These hostilities led Cuba to buddy up with the Soviet Union, and there they found the perfect place to house some of their nukes, mm. just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. Horrifying. Unsurprisingly, the U.S. did not find this leveling of the playing field very acceptable. <laughs> and President Kennedy had to make a choice on how the U.S. was to respond. Right. A weak response would allow the missiles to be installed in launch sites in Cuba, which would be a massive issue not only for national security, but also Kennedy's promise to be strong against the Soviet Union and Cuba. Right. But a strong response could launch the world into World War III. Mm -hmm. And we all know what that means. So Kennedy chose a less aggressive response that would still achieve his goal. A naval blockade would be set up around Cuba so to not allow any of these missiles to arrive on the island. Now, tensions were higher than they had ever been, and the threat of nuclear war was at its highest as well. The world waited to see if diplomacy would prevail or if war was inevitable. But meanwhile, four Soviet Foxtrot-class Fox submarines were also headed to Cuba in the Atlantic. They maintained a deep dive to avoid detection, but this also meant that they really couldn't communicate with Moscow. Right. So deep underwater. Unless they were to, sur unless they were to surface, which they couldn't do because they'd be identified. More importantly, these submarines were armed with a nuclear-tipped torpedo. Uh-oh. Inside the submarine B-59, Captain Valentin Savinsky was stressed. The AC in this sub had failed. Oh, my God. Nope. And it was making temperatures inside over 110 degrees. Goodbye. High levels of carbon dioxide were causing the 
the crew to faint. Oh, my God. And they were unsure of the situation above. Oh, my God. All they knew was that tensions were very high. And for all they knew, war may have already started. Oh, gee whiz. They just didn't know what was going on, right? Oh, God. So then on October 27th, the crew of the B-59 was shocked by sudden explosions around them. <gasps> it seems a U.S. vessel had located them. Oh, but Savitsky did not want, he didn't know what was happening. Mm-hmm. He didn't know if they were being attacked or they being signaled because they were so oh. low they couldn't receive the radio transmissions. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't know if a war had broken out. So Savitsky ordered an immediate dive to further depths to further, to, to mm-hmm. you know, hide. Um, he was convinced that war had begun and wanted to surface and launch their nuclear torpedo at the closest U.S. target. Whoa. They would only have a few moments to fire, so the torpedo would have to be primed and ready to go pretty much immediately. Oh, God. They would perish as well, but they would take some of the enemy with them. Mm. Normally, a direct order from Moscow would uh, would be the only way they would be allowed to use the nuclear torpedo. Right. But in cases where communication was impossible, like if... Moscow may have been destroyed. Oh, my God. Or something horrible had happened. The captain and the political officer were required to both authorize the launch. Oh, fadoofa. But as luck would have it, there was a third officer on board who had the same rank as Savitsky, uh, Valisi Arkhipov. He was second in command of the B-59, but Arkhipov was also the chief of staff of the submarine brigade that was headed to Cuba. Holy smokes. This meant that all three men would have to agree to the launch. Wow. So Savitsky agreed. The political officer agreed. But Arkhipov did not. Good. Thank God. An argument erupted in this hot, cramped, and (laughs) low-oxygen submarine. (laughs) As the captain ordered the torpedo to be armed, and Arkhipov said to belay that order. Now, shockingly, this was not the first time that Arkhipov had found himself facing down death. The previous year, he was aboard uh, the K-19, Russia's first nuclear-armed submarine, when it experienced a leak in its nuclear r- uh, reactor core and its cooling system. And meltdown of the core was imminent, but engineering crew risked their lives to jerry-rig a cooling system to avoid a potential explosion or, or at least the destruction of their vessel. Wasn't that a movie with Harrison Ford? Uh, I don't know. I looked it up, and there have been movies about both situations. K nineteen, the Widowmaker. Yes, the Widowmaker is that is was the nickname of this sub. Hey. Yeah, so I think you're right. Okay. But I don't know the name of the movie. I think it's called K nineteen, the Widowmaker. That's what I'm saying. Oh, that's 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 the name of the movie starring Harrison Ford. Wow. Bingo. There you go. <laughs> so if you've seen this movie, you may already know what happens. <laughs> Um, I don't know if this part was in the movie, though. Well, I've never seen it either. Well, actually, no, no. B-59 is the is the, the more, I don't know, it seems a little more exciting to me. Okay. But K-19 was also very stressful. Right. Because um, they were having to jerry-rig this, this cooling system. Yeah. And meanwhile, radiation is pouring into the sub. Oh, God. Right. And Arkhipa was on the K-19 during this time. It's probably Harrison Ford. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. They were able to su- successfully cool the core down and avoid a meltdown. Mm-hmm. 
but the entire crew had been irradiated. Oh, God. With the engineers getting the worst of it. Right. So all of those engineers died within one month of the incident. Holy crap. Yeah. Oh, God. And 15 more sailors on the sub died over the following two years. This is, this reminds me of the Demon Corps. Yeah. 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 Yeah, basically. But Arkhipov was, was lucky so far. He wasn't dead. Right. Um, He may be soon. <laughs> but now he was on the brink of death again. Right. Sooner than he w- maybe would have expected <laughs> for starting that morning. Right. But he didn't believe that war had started. But he knew that launching the torpedo would certainly start yeah. a war. He knew that Savitsky was stressed, irritated, and making a rash decision, not to mention possibly succumbing to the effects of CO2 poisoning. Oh, that's a good point. So Arkhipov managed to convince convince Savitsky that the Americans were not attacking them. They were probably signaling them to surface. And in fact, this was true. B-59 had passed through the American blockade, and the USS Randolph was dropping practice depth charges, which were were about as powerful as like a hand grenade. Wow. They were dropping them down to signal to them, come up and identify yourself. Oh. They believed the submarine was unaware that they had passed the blockade, (laughs) or they may have been unaware of the blockade at all. Right. But even if they were aware, they had to, they, they couldn't just let them pass. Right. They couldn't let them reach Cuba, and uh, they'd have to respond more aggressively if they did not surface. Mm-hmm. But they also didn't know that this uh, this submarine was armed with a nuclear weapon. <laughs> right. So they didn't realize how how bad this was down yeah. there. So finally, um, Savitsky agreed. The B-59 surfaced, and the officers exited. And finally getting in cooler air and oxygen into the sub. All right, thank God but also exposing them to an unknown fate. But Arkhipov was correct. The Americans only wanted to talk to them and escort them back across the blockade. Right. Okay. If Savitsky had fired his torpedo, (sighs) one aircraft carrier and 11 Navy destroyers may have been destroyed. Whoa. And them themselves also. And with both parties destroyed, neither side would have known what happened. And likely oh. blamed the other. Oh my God! Yeah, this would have undoubtedly escalated into full war. Oh jeez! But it didn't, because Arkhipov happened to be on that sub. Harrison Ford, am I right? <laughs> Damn. So let's just take a look at it. If Petrov was not stationed at Oko, mm-hmm. and instead of someone else with less critical thinking skills was there. Or with like an anxiety panic disorder. <laughs> you right. see those five blips, you're like, I'm pressing the button, fuck it. Nope, we gotta go. And if Arkhipov had not been on board the uh, B-59, would have been on board one of the other four subs. Mm-hmm. Mutually assured destruction very likely would have been the outcome. That's so wild. Thousands of nuclear weapons would have been fired by either each side, and large cities in Asia, Europe, and North America would have been obliterated instantly. Yikes. Radioactive particles would spread by wind, affecting those who were not near targets, mm-hmm. and smoke and other particles from the blast and fires would fill the stratosphere, causing a nuclear winter for years. Pretty much no one is safe in this scenario. Well, no, because if that happened, then global temperatures fall, crops mm-hmm. don't grow. Oh, yeah. And you and 
you experience a huge famine. We're all screwed. Pretty much. So it's a pretty good thing it didn't happen. Yeah. And that's how two men saved the world from the nuclear apocalypse. Wow. It's pretty, pretty cool. It is. It's also really nerve wracking. Oh, yeah. It's so nerve wracking. <laughs> and most of this we didn't learn about until decades later. Oh, God. Because the, the Soviets weren't necessarily being like, hey, check it out. We had this little mishap. We wanted to tell you guys about this. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> these stories came out much later. Yeah. After the fall. And now we know how close we got just based on some accidents, some uh, computer errors, just not quite understanding what was happening, making a false assertion. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, luckily we didn't. That is really deeply upsetting. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode <laughs> of Fantastic History. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a like, a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Please leave a review of any kind, even if it just says great show, um, good show, 50-50 show. That's okay. Reviews are great, and five-star ratings are also really good, too. If you have any questions for us, you can shoot us an email at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com, and you can check us out on threads and Instagram at fantastichpod on both. Did I get that right, fantastichpod? Yep. All right, I did. I usually don't write this down, so I'm just pulling it from my head. <laughs> yeah. All right, until next week. See ya. Bye.